You can't handle the truth. Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. And totally redeem yourself! <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger boat. Get away from her, you bitch! The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. To infinity and beyond! Hi, and welcome to the Samuel and Manuel Movie Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Sam Reimer. And I'm Manny Manuel. Well, off the top of the show is usually where we have some witty banter, and I've been trying to rack my brain for just about anything to say, (laughs) but uh, I think it's safe to say that's the beginning of the Christmas rush in retail for both of us, or just really the Christmas rush in general for you, has gotten to both of us. Yes, yeah, I uh, I had a very long day today. I am sapped of energy. Um, my only motivation for my shit day today was to get here to be able to do this. That's all I was looking forward to. Yeah, I actually accepted a later shift today uh, for one of my coworkers. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I am feeling uh, weary. So we will uh, get some caffeine in us, as we always do. We will keep the energy high, keep things light. Indeed. And- Hopefully not make too many mistakes, as we all know we're both going to do anyway. I'm sure as soon as you and I both start uh, prattle on, prattling on about movies, our energy level will pick up pretty good. Oh, yeah. We we could turn it into a drinking game if that wouldn't make me fall asleep faster. <laughs> <laughs> but in the meantime, before we get into the meat of the episode today... Mr. Manny Manuel, why don't you tell the people where they can uh, where they can find us on social media? Yeah, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, and I'm going to check some other uh, podcasting uh, apps and websites to see if we're available there, so I'll keep us up to date on that. But you can also contact us through our social media on Facebook, as well as Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. We would love to hear from you. Um we uh, we have a mailbag episode coming up next week, so the deadline for those uh, for those questions to come in uh, is uh, fast approaching. So if you do want to help uh, make our mailbag episode uh, even more uh, exciting and fun, please get your questions into us uh, at on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, or if you know us personally, you can text us. And if you don't know us personally, uh, we'll then uh, get to know us more, and we'll uh, we'll eventually exchange phone numbers. <laughs> Especially you, uh, Mr. or Mrs. Sweden person. I'm still intrigued by this whole thing. Ah, shit, that reminds me. I was going to learn how to uh, say, like, hello or <laughs> in, in Swedish or something like that. But we'll, we'll get there. By the, by the end of uh, our tenure, this entire podcast will be in the Swedish language. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes as that will increase our profile and will find uh, will allow more people to find our little uh, our little podcast. I forgot to double check our numbers uh, as I usually do before each episode. Uh, we already know how famous we are. That's right. We're at a good baker's dozen, I think. <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, on this week's episode, this is the one that we had to put back a week, uh, but we're, uh, we're happy to be here. Uh, this is when we're going to look uh, at the 77th Annual Academy Awards. We're gonna, uh, we're, we revisited the five Best Picture nominees. Uh, we're going to discuss them. We're going to spoil them. Uh, and then now, was this 13, 13 years of hindsight, we're going to decide 
which one should be Best Picture. Did they get it right in 2005, or do Sam and I disagree with their selection? Uh, I'm going to go right off the bat here. I've just been looking off the nominees. Mm -hmm. It's pretty clear to me that uh, Best Picture should have been won by a movie that was not even nominated. (laughs) Are we going to... I'm going to go there right now before we even Can I I'm I'm pretty sure I know which one you're going to pick. I'm gonna, I'm pretty sure you know what it is. I think it it actually it ended up it ended up winning an Academy Award that year. And that's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. You're absolutely correct. Yes. One of uh, very few movies that you and I have both given 5 out of 5 stars on air. Um however many episodes ago that was. But yeah, Eternal Sunshine is a beautiful movie if you haven't seen it, you should definitely go watch it, but that's Unfortunately, not one we get to talk about today. And uh, if you have seen that movie, you should definitely listen to our episode. Uh, that's episode number 21, Eternal Sunshine of Spotless Mind. Which was just off the top of your head, right? Yes, of course. <laughs> um, I actually wanted I, – I, I should have brought it up, but I uh, – uh, actually, before I make my point, Sam, out of these five nominees for Best Picture, which we should tell our listeners right now were The Aviator – Finding Neverland, Million Dollar Baby, Ray, and Sideways. Prior to this, had you seen any of these movies? Um, I actually saw Finding Neverland when it came out. Wow. A, I was too young to really get it. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, B, I mean, I I obviously didn't really remember any of it. I've seen, I think, some of the more famous scenes of Ray just on TV and Mm -hmm. stuff, like the... uh, hit the road jack scene and uh, a couple others but mostly uh, I, w- I was going into this pardon the pun blind nice nice <laughs> um this uh this was one of the years as as uh, as uh, a lot of our loyal listeners know these episodes are easily one of my favorites to do if if not my favorite mine um, as well mine as well awesome um, so, but this was one of the years that I, I'm, I was kind of, uh, not excited about, um, these five movies, uh, there's, there's, there's two in here that I actually, I'm not really a big fan of. So the prospect of rewatching them, uh, I was not excited about and, uh, I, I got them out of the way, uh, right away and, uh, was happy to, um, I'm, I am looking forward to discussing them. Um, and, uh, I, I, one of my plans was, um, because I, I, I really wanted to look at the other movies that had come out this year to find replacements for these, uh, for these ones. But uh, I unfortunately didn't get around to it, even with the extra time we had to prepare. Um, I, I did have one other, maybe not as a replacement, just cause it is so rare mm-hmm. for a movie like this one to take the spot of a best picture nominee but i would have loved uh like one of the best movies released this year was the incredibles oh the incredibles nice. came out this year and uh that's certainly that one and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind are two of my favorite movies and incredibles is up there for the best pixar movie and one of the best animated movies ever um eternal sunshine we've already talked about so there were definitely some that were probably missed another good one um is the best of the Harry Potter series, which is the Prisoner of Azkaban, although that, of course, would never have a chance in hell to uh, to get the Best Picture nominee, but nonetheless, quite a good one. Also, the best of the original Spider-Man trilogy, Spider-Man 2, um, came out this year. Again, not necessarily a Best Picture nominee, but 
definitely another good movie that came out this year. I'm going to actually, since we're on the subject, I'm going to take a quick peek through these. Unfortunately, these are in uh, um, alphabetical order. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Before Sunset, I haven't seen, uh, but I heard it's really good. Uh, let's see here. The butterfly effect, I didn't mind. It's not one that I would, um, uh, want on this list, but I, I did enjoy that. Oh, the movie Closer. Uh, I know it got a couple. Oh, here's another one I like. Closer, it did get a couple nominees this year in the acting categories for Clive Owen and Natalie Portman. Uh, Closer is a really good movie. Dark as shit, uh, but I really liked it. Um, Collateral. With uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Oh, what a great movie. What Fucking a great movie. love that movie. Have um, we talked about that one before? No. Oh, that's um, a fucking great movie. Man, Jamie Foxx killed it this year. Yeah, he well, he got double nominations, hey? Oh, did he really? He was nominated for Best Actor for Ray and Best Supporting Actor for Collateral. I see that, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, one of the few Ben Stiller movies I liked, Dodgeball, released this year. Oh, yes. Oh, Eurotrip. I haven't seen it since it came out. Holy shit. Fahrenheit 9-11. That was this year. Good damn. This movie, this, uh, uh, this year's not, uh, not too bad so far. But I still haven't found anything that I'd really probably put... Oh, the first Hellboy. That was a pretty good movie. Uh, I haven't really found anything that I would... Repl- oh, there's The Incredibles. Uh, let's see here. Uh, oh. Obviously, obviously, with it being a kids' movie, I wouldn't really expect you to be a big fan of this one. But uh, Lemony Snicket's "A Series of Unfortunate Events" came out this year. That's one of the ones I remember from this year because I, I was a big fan of that series as a kid, and I remember actually being disappointed by the movie. I haven't watched it in years and years and years. But uh, I would actually probably—I'm not gonna lie—I would actually uh, Kill Bill Volume Two was this year. Um, oh, nice! I would probably put it on there. Um, a movie I love, but definitely wouldn't make this uh, wouldn't make best picture. That's Man on Fire. Uh, let's see here. Hmm. Uh, oh, the movie everyone loves except for me, Napoleon Dynamite. Wasn't a fan. You didn't like Napoleon Dynamite. No, nope. oh, that's upset. Um, the tearjerker movie of the century for me, The Notebook, released this year. Overrated. Overrated. Uh, let's see here. Wow, I'm still not seeing anything that I would definitely. So it looks like they might have, might have gotten it kind of right, as I don't see anything that I would definitely say had to have been on this list. I, as far as best picture go, the only one we've talked about so far that I think had to have been nominated that wasn't was Eternal Sunshine. Yeah. Oh, one of my f- favorite movies. Well, I shouldn't say favorite. One of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Team America World Police. Iconic movie. Mm, wow. Best part, of, best part of that movie is the Pearl Harbor song. Wow, looking at the... Wow, wow. Okay, so... Another... Sorry, one one more before we diverge off of this. Yeah. Not really a great movie, but just a really entertaining one, in my opinion. I, Robot. I agree. I agree. I, I, think, I think just a solid sci-fi movie. Wow, okay. So, doesn't look like there was a lot on there that really resonated with me that I would have slipped in there. I, I won't lie, Kill Bill Volume 2 would definitely be on this list. Uh, and, of course, uh, Eternal Sunshine, which is a glaring omission in my opinion. That's, that's maybe one thing you and I should uh, remember for the next episode. Maybe uh, get get our replacements in there and at it, least our, it, maybe our, our favorite movies from this year. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's get started. Like always, we are going to do this alphabetically, and 
And as a heads up right now, we will be spoiling each and every one of these movies. So if you haven't seen any of these uh, 2004 films, uh, pause it right here. Go watch them. Come back and join us. Uh, I, I am looking forward to talking about these movies. But like I said, there's a couple on here I, I wasn't a big fan of. So, um, Sam, you ready to go? Yeah, quick question. Yeah, are yeah. we starting uh, with Aviator, comma, the? Or uh, <laughs> are we going... Uh, Finding Neverland right away. No, we're going with Aviator, comma, the... Okay. And, uh, oh, I forgot. Damn it. I'm going to have to do them off the top of my head. I always forget to do favorite scene. Oh, yeah. I definitely forgot to do that, too. God, we're bad at this, aren't we? I know. We really are. Uh, It's a good thing we don't have sponsors or anything to disappoint. (laughs) Just just legions of fans. That's right. Legions Legions. of fans. Legions Uh, is like... Too, like dozens right or like tens even it, that would be too many that is that's still that's still too many <laughs> <laughs> all right so we have the aviator uh directed by martin scorsese written by john logan uh 77 metascore uh budget of 110 million uh gross 213 worldwide it won five oscars uh best supporting actress for kate blanchett best cinematography best film editing best art direction and best costume design it had six other nominations including obviously best picture best actor for leonardo dicaprio best supporting actor for alan alda best director for martin scorsese best original screenplay and best sound mixing the plot a biopic depicting the early years of legendary director and aviator howard hughes career from the late 1920s to the mid 1940s sam You'd never seen The Aviator prior to this. What do you think of it? Yeah, uh, not only had I not seen The Aviator, I wasn't really, uh, like I had heard of Howard Hughes, wasn't really familiar with a lot of his stuff other other than the fact that, you know, he was uh, a famous aviator and that he was a movie director, but I, I really couldn't name you a Howard Hughes movie off the top of my head. Um, I also knew that this was a one of the few Leo DiCaprio movies that I haven't seen, so uh, this was certainly on the list already, and uh, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised that I enjoyed this movie. It, it is Leonardo DiCaprio, it is Martin Scorsese. Um, this was one of the stronger entries, in my opinion, in the uh, in the five nominees of this year. It had it, maybe a little bit overlong, which I guess we'll get to, but initial impressions, I was quite impressed. All right, this is where you and I disagree. Oh, I did not like rarity. I know I did not like the Aviator when it came out. This is one of the movies that I was not looking forward to rewatching. I was, I was kind. I shouldn't say. Re going into rewatching it, I was I was open to the idea. I'm like, okay, maybe something about myself triggered me when I watched it when in 2004. Maybe I'll like it now. And rewatching it, I was like, nope, I don't like it. Um, DiCaprio's performance is uh, is good, not great. Uh, him not winning Best Actors, he shouldn't have won. Um, it's not a bad performance, but it's it's fine. Um, there was the, the I'm actually stunned that this won Best Film Editing because I found the editing distracting at times. Um, I've I've noticed a couple times. Uh, did we do another Scorsese movie? Oh, what did I, we do? Uh, I can't remember. I I, I always, I always want to say Scarface <laughs> just because it feels like a Scorsese type movie, but that's not him. I just remember. I I I I can't remember. We were talking about a Scorsese movie or something else, but I found the editing in this distracting, and I wish I'd taken a better note. 
because um, then I could think of a a, a a perfect example. But um, I, oh oh, pardon me, <clears throat> sorry for coughing in the microphone. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't hate this movie, um, but I I wasn't a huge fan. Yes, sir. We talked about The Departed. Thank you. Yes, right. And I remember distinctly saying that the editing in that one bugged me too because the scene would just all of a sudden end like completely cut off and jump right into another one maybe this might be the same thing um it's interesting because i i haven't really noticed the same thing because this is two scorsese movies that we've talked about and the editing hasn't really struck me uh in the way that it struck you and i kind of wonder why that is um there there were moments in this movie for sure that had erratic editing mm -hmm. i found them more to be in the moments where uh, Howard Hughes is having some of his episodes where he's really having OCD breakdowns and he's uh, kind of slipping into madness. So in those moments, it of course felt more intentional. Yep. But I and, guess and what, you, what you're more talking about is just uh, uh, your run of the mill scene, scene transitions. Yeah. Scene transitions and th things of the like. Yeah. Yeah. The editing when he's having his, when his OCD is taking over, th that doesn't bother me because that's obviously intentional. So that it wasn't, it wasn't that it was bothering me, but the scene transitions for Scorsese in the last two movies of his that we watched, um, <clears throat> are a little jarring for me and, and I'm not a fan of that style. Um, but, um, the other, <clears throat> the other, oh my gosh, the other areas, uh, where this one, especially Cape Blanchett winning, for her portrayal of Catherine Hepburn. I remember seeing it in the theater and I was just jaw dropped. But come on, like Blanchett's easily one of the, in my opinion, top three actresses today. Um, yeah, it's, her getting a nomination is like Meryl Streep getting a nomination. It's sort of like, it's like oh, Kate Blanchett. <laughs> you okay over there, Manny? <laughs> oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> you did not turn your microphone off. That is so horrible. <laughs> He's <laughs> coughing right over me. Oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> uh, just thinks he's the star of the show. And this is... is how you know that uh, all of this is raw, unedited <laughs> stuff, because uh, that's staying the fuck in. I am yeah, definitely not taking that out. What a fucking dick. I gotta make uh, sure that green light's off so next time. Right now that they got to hear you just cough up a big <clears throat> hunk of phlegm. I know, right? Oh my god, that is so fucking disgusting and horrible. I can't, I can't even remember what we were talking about. Kate <laughs> Blanchett. Yes. <laughs> You're talking about Kate Blanchett getting a nomination the same as Meryl Streep. Yeah, basically. It was just like, oh, she was in a movie this year. We have to have to throw one her way. Um, not always the case. Uh, uh, one of like, the performances of Kate Blanchett that we've always talked about is, uh, is it Hella from, yeah. uh, from Thor, Thor Ragnarok? Yeah. yeah, that performance has definitely grown on me. But uh, it certainly doesn't show off her talent as an actress as much as this role does. Yeah, she is absolutely superb um, as as Catherine Hepburn. Uh, she's hands down the highlight of the movie for me. Um, the art direction and costume design are uh, are top notch. Recreating the twenties and forties was great, um, especially uh, the recreation of of the planes that Howard Hughes helped design and build. Um, it's the movie itself that I didn't really enjoy. The story. Um, of how uh, his OCD overtook him for a while, how he overcame it himself, and how this man helped change uh, aviation um, is fascinating. But I just I was not enthralled with this movie. Um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. I, I can see where you're coming from with that for sure. I think 
the main attraction of this movie for me is the writing of the character of Howard Hughes, the the progression of his mental illness I, I found really, really interesting, and how he even managed to support this huge empire that he did um, in his condition, and then the depictions of that condi- condition when it really gets bad. Um, it shows off some really creative filmmaking, I thought. Um, and I, I personally liked Leonardo DiCaprio's performance a lot. I know you said... And I agree that it wasn't one of his best, but Leo always has just really solid performances. There are very few performances of his that are the best of the year that they came out, which is sort of why it took him so long to win that Oscar. Um, And this is one of those performances that was like a really good, solid performance, Mm -hmm. probably not the best of its respective year. Yeah, totally. Like, I'm not ragging on his performance. His performance was good, but he was not... He he wasn't the best, and and we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, he, the other um, the other one, Alan Alda getting a best supporting actor nomination for me as well was a little jarring. Uh, I didn't find him to be that um, impressive, to be honest. I and I like Alan Alda, um, but I didn't find him really to be that strong in this movie. I I, I don't. I don't know what I'm missing to see that nomination. Um, but again, even in that category uh, of best supporting actor that year, he wasn't anywhere close. Well, looking, looking at them right now, he's, he's number five out of the five nominees in my opinion. Yeah. Where are we for supporting actor? Oh yeah. Yeah. Of the movies that I've seen in there, he's definitely the least, uh, important i'm actually surprised as well that he got nominated not that he was bad at all but no he wasn't bad it's just just not notable like i actually when when you said alan alda i'm surprised he got nominated i I said kind of in my head like oh who did he play in this movie (laughs) like (laughs) i had to i've just watched this movie this week i mean i have watched all five movies this week so they sort of blurred together but um yeah it it was definitely that's a kind of a head scratcher i agree um Honestly, I I don't really have much more to say on the Aviator. I, I, it was not an impressive film for me. I didn't I didn't hate it, um, but it's now now that we've watched it for this show, I would honestly be surprised if I ever watched it again. Yeah, I'm trying to look through my notes here and get some more specifics of uh, of things that I wanted to point out. There was one scene uh, right off the bat of uh, Howard Hughes grabbing a waitress and uh, and hitting on her. And it, it struck me as the kind of scene, like, fuck, if you put that in a movie in 2018, you would get in shit for that, where mm-hmm. he basically just feels her up right there at the table and uh, tells her that he, he wants to fuck her. And, like, just in the, in the middle of this uh, this ballroom... And she she totally goes for it. It's definitely the type of uh, the type of scene that doesn't fly uh, fourteen years later. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, I, I honestly didn't even really get the point of it because Howard Hughes it, he's built up as like an egomaniac, but this scene in particular, sort of, even though he was a womanizer, it's not like he was good with women ever. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, he he basically surrounded himself as far as the women goes with women who just wanted him for his money right so this move just played him as this super like look at how cool he is that he can just get away with something like this like i, I just didn't it, it right off the bat it kind of took me out of the movie to be honest with you yeah i can understand that um 
Yeah, I I, I can't defend it. Um, <laughs> nor would I really want to. Nor would I really want to. Uh, yeah. Um, I I I guess if there's anything else I wanted to point out as positives in this movie, yeah, there. I, I mentioned the progression of his mental illness and the attention to detail that they pay in a lot of these scenes. Little things like uh, him having all of his peas in perfect columns when he's eating, or um, there's a scene where he's working on a plane and someone reaches out to shake his hand and he goes, oh, sorry, I got, got grease on my hands. And like, Just little things that don't really draw attention to themselves. Um, I love the scene of him in the bathroom trying to wash uh, his shirt. Then he uses all the towels and yeah, uh, can't get out. able to touch the door and help to get out. I thought that was a really uh, a really good and well-directed scene. Um, those sorts of scenes are the star of the show for me. Um, I really liked this as a character study um, and a look into the mind of a brilliant but very troubled person. Yeah, I can get I, – I totally get that. Um Actually, the other thing I did want to touch on um, that I forgot to it this would this this did win best cinematography. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't find the cinematography to be noticeable, in my opinion. I didn't think it was bad. I definitely didn't think it was great. Um, and actually, right now, looking at the list, uh, I could I personally, and we'll talk about later. I definitely think the cinematography in Ray was definitely better than this. Mm-hmm. And Ray I did. I don't even think Ray got nominated. Um, I don't know what did get nominated for Best Cinematography this year. Um, uh, Best Cinematography, Aviator, House of Flying Daggers, Passion of the Christ, Phantom of the Opera, and A Very Long Engagement. So this was actually the only Best Picture nominee to also get nominated for Cinematography this year. Oh, wow. I can't believe we didn't talk about The Passion of the Christ. Um, yeah. Well, House of Flying Daggers um, is a gorgeous film. Uh, so I can see why it got nominated. Very long gamage I haven't seen. The Phantom of the Opera, if I saw it, I don't remember it. I obviously remember the play because I've seen it twice. Um, so, wow, it looks like, the, looks like the competition wasn't that fierce. Um, like I said, it just feels like a weak year to me. Um, yeah, for, for me, The Aviator was middle of the road. For me, not a great, not a great film, not a bad film, just a middle of the road biopic. Yeah, it's certainly. I, I could see this movie in a stronger year not getting nominated, um, and I can definitely see where you're coming from. That it just it didn't engage you. I, I found enough in it for me that was interesting, and it, it grabbed my attention for the full, you know, close to three hour long runtime. Um, yeah, I, I can see how this movie wouldn't be for everyone. Um, I. I just personally enjoyed it. One last thing I did want to actually mention. Yeah. One last specific thing with this movie. I love the scene of the plane crash. Uh, Howard's Howard's plane crash definitely felt... Oh. Uh, uh, I, I felt the terror. And I, it was... They, there was certainly no holds barred with it. It was gory. It was bloody. It was disturbing. And it was effective. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I will I will give this to them um, with this movie being just ten minutes short of three hours. I didn't find that it was three hours long, even though I'm not a huge fan of this movie. I didn't feel it dragged. Um, I wasn't looking at my watch wondering when it was going to end. Um, so I'll, I'll tip my cap to them for that for keeping me engaged for close to three hours without me being bored for a movie I didn't fully enjoy. So I will give them that. Um, Favorite scene? Um, 
I, I've purposely not touched on it. I think the scene where he locks himself in the theater and uh, go, solely delves into madness is going to be the winner for me. It It's a nice culmination of everything we've seen up to this point, all these little moments of his OCD and his mental illness taking over. Um, maybe a close second would be the plane crash, but for me, it's got to be the theater. For me, it's the uh, it's the courtroom, or sorry, not the courtroom, the Senate hearing scene at the end, um, where he turns the tables on uh, Alan Alda's senator, um, and he's kind of really rebounded from his OCD taking over his life. Um, kind of a little fuck you moment where he he has the facts to back up what he's saying to counteract what the senator's doing. Um, I really enjoyed that. That that's probably my favorite scene. Yep, I think uh, that just about covers it for this one. Why don't we move on alphabetically to Finding Neverland. Awesome. Finding Neverland, directed by Mark Forster, uh, written by Alan Nee and David McGee, uh, has a 67 meta score, a uh, budget of $25 million, a gross of $116. Uh, it won one Oscar, won Best Original Score, had six other nominations, which obviously include Best Picture, Best Actor for Johnny Depp, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, and Best Costume Design. Uh, the plot of the movie is the story of Sir J.M. Barry's friendship with a family who inspired him to create Peter Pan. Sam, this is the only movie you had seen prior to this, but like you mentioned earlier, uh, you were too young to fully realize what you were watching, so you revisited now in 2018. What are your thoughts on Finding Neverland? Um... It was fine, you know. I it, it again, like you can say of probably most of the movies on this list. In a stronger year, this doesn't get nominated. I don't think um, it. It's honestly pretty forgettable, in my opinion. Um, it does not to say it's completely without merit. There's some interesting things to go along with this. I like the relationships that are fleshed out in it. This is back when Johnny Depp's charisma was still new and fresh, and uh, people still gave a shit. Um, the kids are pretty charming in it as well. Uh, I love the relationship between him and the kids. Um, and outside of that, I'm not sure of, uh, of what else to really say. Nothing, no part of this movie was really bad, in my opinion. It was just, it was fine. Yeah, best picture? Definitely not. <laughs> um, but, you know, it was, it was fine. I agree wholeheartedly. This was the other movie I wasn't that excited to revisit. Uh, and rewatching it, I was like, yep, this is exactly what I remembered. Um, definitely not best picture worthy, in my opinion. Uh, a pretty much forgettable film. Not even honestly, I, like, like you said, there's not a moment in this movie that stands out to me. Um, the one, uh, You can definitely see the different... You can definitely see the difference in today's film as opposed to back then, and back then is only 13 years ago, but the, I guess for lack of a better word, the dream sequences or imagination sequences would now be done in CGI instead of the um, budget restraint way that they were done. Or Yeah, let's talk about that actually, the, okay. the effect of the dream sequences and the imagination sequences. Because they are quite clearly low budget, mm -hmm. the way that they've shot them. What did you think of? Do you think they were intentionally like, or is it just 
is it 14 years hindsight that these look bad now or was it supposed to look sort of childish to meet the the themes of the movie i do i think they were meant to be i think that they were meant it was done on purpose in my opinion they were done that way more to kind of invoke a child's idea of what uh jm barry is proposing to them um like with the dancing bear like the first one i think is the dancing bear in the circus um, and it's done really low budget, and it doesn't look good. But in my in my mind, I think that's the way that he thinks that a child would see it, um, or the or those children would see it. Um, in today's film, if they were to remake this now, um, all of those sequences would be redone fully digital. Like you know, later on when they're at the house and they're playing cowboys and Indians. I bet you there would be a big CGI old western town setting there and they would all be fully dressed in garb. Um, but again, I, I didn't... Uh, this this movie was middle of the road at, at best for me. Um, the things that were... The one thing uh, with it is I don't know if Depp's accent is any good because uh, I'm not from the UK. So I don't know if he's pulling off a good accent or not. Um, I would love to know if, if any of our listeners are from the UK and could tell me if his accent was good or bad. I would love to hear that. Um, him getting a Best Actor nomination for this is surprising. My memory of this movie was that Winslet got a nomination because that wouldn't have surprised me, but she didn't. Um She's she's really good in this movie. If she got a nomination, I would have been I wouldn't have been surprised. The fact that she didn't is kind of sh- a little bit shocking to me, but it's not an Oscar winning performance in my mind with the exception of the last scene um where the play is at the house because her emotions that she reveals just through her eyes throughout that whole final scene to me, is the highlight of the film. Um, the Most of the movie, I was slightly uninterested, but I knew from my memories that that last scene at the house was going to be worth it, and Winslet makes it worth it. It's really, really touching, and she really carries that scene. Yeah, uh, Jamie Foxx pulled off what she couldn't this year with his double nomination because she was nominated for uh, Best Actress, or I guess, the, she, no, she lost, of course, to Hilary Swank, uh, but she was nominated for Best Actress for Eternal Sunshine and then uh, couldn't pull off the, the double nomination for this one. But yeah, her performance was certainly was a standout in this movie. Not Again, not like Johnny Depp was bad or anything like that. He was just Johnny Depp, and I think he was nominated because the Johnny Depp charm was still new and fresh to uh, to audiences everywhere. As far as his accent is concerned, uncultured Canadian swine like you and I will not uh, <laughs> will not be able to discern the subtle differences between this UK accent and that UK accent. But definitely didn't take me out of the movie, so I guess yeah. I can't complain about it all that much. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not saying it's bad. I, I'm just always, you know. Because I'm not from the UK, I'm always wondering, are their accents any good? Much like I didn't even know Daniel Kaluuya was from the UK. Uh, so his American accent to me was spot on. Um, but uh, 
perhaps perhaps one of the reasons that Depp got nominated for this performance is knowing how eccentric 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 Johnny mm. Depp is in real life for him to play such a low key role is is an astounding fact um a couple things that I did like about this movie, even though, uh, like I said, I, I, I wasn't the biggest fan. Um, Dustin Hoffman's little quips and barbs uh, as the, I guess, theater owner or producer were fucking hilarious. Just these little digs, little shots every once in a while were, the hi- were, were one of the highlights of the movie for me. Um, the other thing I noticed is that even while dying, Kate Winslet is still stunningly gorgeous. When she's supposed to be at the height of this sickness, she still looks beautiful. Honestly, even when she's dying on the door in Titanic, I'm just like, damn, that is one sexy, frozen human being. Yes. Um, because uh, I, and through my research, as, as you know, uh, I do like to pick up little things on the movie. I didn't find anything that interesting on The Aviator, but I have a couple tasty little tidbits about finding Neverland. Shoot. Um at the end of the movie, and, and the end of the movie, I'm just going to spoil it right here. The, the, my favorite scene is the end of the movie when, the, when Jamberry brings the play uh, to Sylvia's house. Um, I did cry. It's so well done. It's so touching. The movie builds up to that moment, um, and, and it does it in a, in a great way. Um, but uh, at the end of the movie, when Jamberry is showing the play to Sylvia at her house... Peter Pan asks them to clap their hands to save Tinkerbell. Julie Christie, who played uh, Sylvia's mom, uh, reaction to this was to immediately start clapping. This was unplanned, and the children had no idea how to respond to it, so the look of shock on their faces is real. I like that. Me too. Uh, We always manage to uh, find these, or you always manage to find these unscripted moments, and those are some of the, the best things some of the best tidbits you can find in movies like this or movies in general is just you can do all the planning you want you can have an image of your in your head of how the movie's gonna go but then sometimes inspiration just hits yeah it can it can work out really well um and then i have two i have two other ones so this other one is if you remember the first uh formal uh dinner scene when the kids come over to jamberry's house with his wife uh the kids are laughing a lot um, because during the formal dinner scene, uh, Johnny Depp placed a fart machine under Julie Christie's chair, and he had a remote control and triggered it all the time, so the kids laughing is them a little bit out of character, but they caught it on film uh, to create that moment. That's hilarious. Yeah. I like that. I'm, I'm 12 years old at heart, so a good, <laughs> a good fart joke is not something that I'm above. And then one of the the other piece of trivia I have is always one of my favorite things is to see uh, who else was offered or considered for the roles in movies. And uh, one person that was considered for the role of J.M. Barry was one of your favorite actors, Jim Carrey. Interesting. I'm sure he uh, had bigger fish to fry with uh, Eternal Sunshine coming yes. up this year. But, uh, it was uh, a wise choice. I would have... I would have definitely been interested at least to see Jim Carrey's uh, rendition of this character. Um, just because he's a really childish physical actor and he probably would have brought another dimension that Johnny Depp or really no actor on earth is uh, capable of doing. Yeah, totally. Um, other than that, 
Uh, again, I, I don't really have much to say. I did actually, um, when they do play uh, Peter Pan uh, for the first time, not at the house, but actually at the play, uh, I liked it. I liked the magic, uh, the moment build up to it. I love that the audience didn't know what to do, and I love uh, how J.M. Barry brought in those orphan kids and placed them throughout the theater. Um, and you could see that his... Whether or not I, I have no idea if that really happened or not, but the effect in the movie um, was really well done, um, and those kids—you could see the joy on those kids. I don't know what he showed them to make them get that joy, because those kids were pretty young, and to get that kind of reaction from them is pretty astounding. Um, but I—that uh, was an, uh, another good part of the movie for me. Yeah, getting the authentic reactions out of the child actors is usually a good sign of good direction. I actually did want to talk about uh, the director, Mark Forster. I'm just looking at his filmography right now. He's actually put together a lot of movies like this in that uh, he makes movies that are good, not great, in my opinion, just looking at what he's made. Um, Finding Neverland, of course. Um, Stranger Than Fiction is, in my opinion, a pretty underrated movie starring Will Ferrell. the Kite Runner was a great book. I remember liking the movie at least. Uh, Quantum of Solace wasn't that great, honestly, in my opinion. World War Z is a movie that I'm an ardent defender of. Um, I, I really enjoyed World War Z as well. Yeah. Man, you and I agree on so much shit. <laughs> uh, and actually, <laughs> I, mean, I just... I just got absolutely shat on. I, uh, I just watched Christopher Robin this year as well. I took my daughter to it. Oh, how was it? It was exactly like Finding Neverland. <laughs> it was it was just it was just fine. Hmm. Yeah, he makes a lot of just fine movies. From the yes. looks of it, just a, just a quaint little filmography he's got there. Um, actually, one more thing I did want to touch on um, before we move on um, is uh, this did win best original score. I wish I had it lined up so we could actually play a little clip of it. But I loved the score in this movie. Um, it was. It was easily one of the first things I noticed, um, and then after watching the movie and then doing the prep work for this section, learning that it won Best Score made me quite happy, because um, I, re- I really love the score of this film. Yeah, Best Original Score nominees, uh, Finding Neverland, of course, won, then there was Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, The Passion of the Christ, and The Village. Um, just looking at that list, obviously I loved the score to this movie as well, but how can you t- take it away from John Williams? Then again, I guess you can't give him eight Oscars for basically the same score, but <laughs> still uh, a little upsetting to see uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban lose. Nonetheless, uh, yeah, I completely agree. The score really sets the magical tone of this movie, and this movie is really about uh, imagination and trying to preserve that, uh, that spark of childhood and what happens when it goes away. And... Uh, if it's even possible to get it back. And it, there, there are some nice moments in this movie to that regard. It shares a lot of themes with Peter Pan, um, which, of course, is a, a pretty timeless tale, uh, minus the cowboys and Indians scenes yeah, <laughs> that are that, also present in this that, movie. I was totally offended by that, just so you know. I, I, knew you, I knew you would have been typing up a big, long blog post, big, right. long Facebook post. It's right there in my notes, totally offended by his portrayal of First Nations. I wrote that in my notes. <laughs> For those who don't know us, uh, we're obviously kidding. Man, yes, not offended by I him. am anything but a social justice warrior. Yeah. 
Although you are half native. Even though I am, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, favorite scene, Finding Neverland. Um, yeah, you pretty much said it with, uh, with the scene at the end where the play is taking place in the in in the house, it was quite a touching scene. Um, besides that, if I'm if I'm just to play devil's advocate, I guess to your point, there's there's a little moment where the eldest son, I think his name is George, uh, finally stands up to his grandmother and oh. just fucking berates her. That that's a smaller moment, but it was uh, it was the first moment from his character where I was like, oh fuck, like yeah, you go, man, way <laughs> to go. I agree so, that that is that was a, a little surprising moment that I liked. Yeah, that was a great moment. But yeah, for me, it, it's it's obviously the when they when they bring the play to the house, it is touching and filling. And like I said, Kate Winslet alone carries that whole moment. Um, and who is it? Oh, I need to quickly. Uh, um, I just want to quickly look her up. Whoever it is that act- is actually playing Peter Pan, Kelly McDonald, um, she's really good. Um, in that final scene as well, um, playing Peter Pan, um, um, I'm uh, I, I just I, I really enjoyed uh, the ending to this movie, um, but for me obviously the highlight is the score, um, but yeah that that's it for Finding Neverland. It's a it's a it's a Mark Forrester middle of the road film. You get what you pay for. Yes. Uh, All right. So with, with that out of the way, I guess we move along to the next one, which is, which is the big one. That would be the Best Picture winner, Million Dollar Baby. Correct. Uh, Million Dollar Baby, directed by Clint Eastwood, written by Paul Haggis. Do you remember that name? I do remember that name, and I was looking it up beforehand, and I can't remember why I remember that name now. He's he's he directed Crash. Yes, yes, that's right. I was looking at his. Uh, filmography he did crash he also wrote quantum of solace casino royale letters from iwo jima all right pretty pretty decent filmography yeah except for crash um (laughs) uh, has an 86 meta score uh oh i missed the budget oh there it is no budget uh is 30 million it grossed a whopping 216 million dollars i think that's pretty pretty standard i I guess i shouldn't say standard but almost expected for a best picture winner because you have to take into consideration all those dollars that were brought in after the Oscars, right? Yes, yeah. Um, it won four Oscars, <clears throat> including Best Picture, uh, Best Actress for Hilary Swank, Best Director for Clint Eastwood, Best Supporting Actor for Morgan Freeman, three other nominations, Best Actor for Clint Eastwood, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Film Editing. The plot, a determined woman works with a hardened boxing trainer to become a professional boxer. Sam, thoughts on Million Dollar Baby? So my only real knowledge of this movie, I actually knew the ending to this movie before I watched it. Oh, that's unfortunate. That was because uh, this just so happens to be one of my dad's least favorite movies. Whoa, least (laughs) favorite? Least favorite movies. Wow. So um, my, my knowledge of this movie was essentially what he had told me. So I was trying to come into this fresh, mm-hmm. as fresh as I could, and form my own opinions and stuff. But the main criticism that my dad always told me about this movie is that it sends a really shitty message to disabled people. Uh, that was his main concern with this movie when he talked to me. Interesting. Okay. In that, you know, the message that could be construed from this movie, he argues, is that life is no longer worth living once 
everything that made you happy is taken away from you, and once you're disabled, that's it. You just, like, it's okay to want to die after that. That's, that's the message that he perceived could be perceived by other people. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. That's interesting. That never occurred to me. Okay. But I can understand how he sees that point. I disagree, <laughs> but I can see how he can... I definitely see... I can understand his criticism. Yeah. Please okay. continue. So keeping in mind that listening to that was my only prior knowledge of this movie, all things considered, I think I came away from it with a pretty positive experience. Um, I certainly had other criticisms, and I can see where he, where my dad got that impression from of what I just said. Um, and there were other criticisms that I had of this movie that we'll get to. But overall, uh, it was quite well directed. The performances were quite good. Um, and just pretty entertaining all around. It's on the surface, this could be considered a sports movie, but it's really not. It it's more of a personal drama. Mm -hmm. um, there's the the boxing is pretty much secondary in this Ag movie. Agreed. Um, uh, I guess I'll leave it there for now and let you give your thoughts. But overall, I found it pretty enjoyable, especially considering how much I was expecting to really not like this movie coming in. Fair enough. Wow, it overcame some obstacles there. Um, Million Dollar Baby, I I don't remember I, – I know that I've seen this more than once, but this might have only been my maybe third or fourth time. Uh, and it's definitely been a while since I watched it. Um, I remember – as I was getting ready to watch this movie, uh, I played the trailer for it. I remember distinctly I was making – I was either making dinner or making some snacks getting ready. So I was playing the trailer and the trailer for this is really good, and it had me really excited to rewatch it. Um, and sitting down rewatching it, um, I was just reminded that I really did enjoy this movie. Um, I am a fan. I am a fan of Clint Eastwood's movies. Um, they're they tend to really be hit or miss. Um, the ones that are really good are really really good, and the ones that aren't are generally pretty fucking bad. Um, this is one that I, I really enjoyed, um, especially, uh, especially acting wise. Um, the, uh, the three nomination, the, the two wins and the one nomination are, are astounding. Hilary Swank is really good, uh, in this movie. Morgan Freeman is really good in this movie and Clint Eastwood, uh, he just reminded me that at times he can be really good. His politics aside, I don't really agree with his politics, but like we've mentioned before, I can separate um, the actor and the art. Um, I also actually really enjoyed the score uh, for this movie, um, which was, if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure was written and performed by Clint Eastwood. Um, the Clint Eastwood, like his his no, his nomination here is basically him playing a grumpy old man, which is what he is in real life. Yeah, really playing against type there. Yeah, um, but I still really liked it. Um, I, it's in it's in the trailer. It's one of the moments uh, in the film. But the quote, uh, "Girly, tough, ain't enough," um, is a quote I really like, and his delivery of that line. Uh, really resonated with me and really stuck with me. Um, I did, I did really, I did really enjoy this movie. Um, that's basically my main thoughts on it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm glad uh, that you brought up uh, Clint Eastwood and the concept of uh, sort of separating the artist from the art. Because that's something that I wanted to talk about as well. Um, because I agree, Clint Eastwood comes off... I, I haven't really gone too in-depth into him as a person, but from what I have seen of him and his politics, I'm not, uh, shall we say, aligned with him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something you definitely want to try to con uh, separate yourself from. That being said... Um, it, as an artist and as a director and as a writer, uh, it's pretty difficult to separate your beliefs from what you're making. And I wouldn't expect anyone to even attempt to separate themselves from their art. So sometimes you do find certain things bleeding through. I was, I was trying to figure out the best way to phrase this actually earlier today while I was at work. I was sort of really bored and doing menial tasks. Um, and I... I I think it's just his worldview in general, not any particular policy that he supports or anything, but he strikes me as a guy who has a very different worldview than I do, and sometimes that comes across. One just even small example of this in this particular movie is just the way that him and Morgan Freeman talk to each other, and this is something you also see in uh, Gran Torino, for example, the way he talks to, uh, I think, a couple of shop owners is just the way men are supposed to talk to each other, how... Like they never show any sort of affection to one another. It's all it's all insults all the time to each other, and it it's just it strikes me as so overly macho just for the sake of being macho. And this is just one small thing. It's one small example of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. like, but that didn't make me hate this movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's just he strikes me as the kind of guy who has a very traditionalist mindset, or even like the whole uh, "I don't train girls" thing. Just kind of struck me as a little bit cheesy or a little bit like a shoehorned in problem in this movie. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm not making any sense here. Why don't nope. you tell me? I, I, know, I know what you're trying to convey, and I understand what you're trying to say. Um, and I'm not making excuses for him being that way, but he is from a different generation. Mm -hmm. from, from you, he's technically two generations away from you. Where for me, Clint Eastwood is generally about one generation away from me yeah. maybe two but um so he, i'm not again i'm not using it as an excuse but the uh the way that he treats uh scrap iron um is the way like those men didn't show their feelings that's how they displayed their affection for one another is the way that they made fun of one another and it's definitely a way that i show my friends how much i love them is oh by, for sure is by no, con no doubt in my mind. by constantly uh, making fun of them as good as 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 well as I can, uh, hopefully in the tier, uh, uh, hopefully to get them to the point where they want to punch me in the face. Um, speaking of that, the chemistry between Eastwood and Freeman is on full display. You can I don't know I'm I'm pretty sure these two guys are friends in real life, and if they're not, then that just elevates the acting chemistry they have between them in this film, um, because. It, they just easily convey that these two guys have known each other for decades and that they really do love one another. But being from the generation they are, they'll never say that, but they just show it in the way that they know how. And that's by making fun of one another and ra constantly ragging on one another. Um, that's, uh, I did want to talk about Morgan Freeman briefly. And yeah. just that I couldn't help but think of the Shawshank Redemption the entire time this movie was playing <laughs> just because Morgan Freeman just has 
the voice that he, he was born to narrate just everything. We need to get this man to record every single word in the English dictionary before he dies so we can just get him to continue narrating stuff after he dies. <laughs> but I, it was it was good. It was awesome. I have it written. Here's one of my notes. And one of the questions in my notes is, are there any movies that Freeman narrates that aren't great? Uh, March of the Penguins? <laughs> That's a great movie. Even that, I saw that in theaters. That was fucking awesome. Yeah, like every any movie that he narrates is automatically fantastic. Yeah, like even those Visa commercials are just like riveting. Yes. They should have gotten him to any movie that's in production hell just needs to hire on Morgan Freeman as a narrator, or even just I would, I would just hire Morgan Freeman to follow me around narrating my life. Like oh. I don't have the money for that, but I would do it. Oh, that would be amazing. Um, one of the other uh, small recurring moment in the movie is I love that Eastwood is taunting and terrorizing a priest, um, questioning religion, questioning the Bible, questioning everything, and the priest is doing everything he can to not snap. Yeah, I, I did like this uh, side of the character um, in that... You know, he, he does have a tendency to keep a distance from people and doesn't really know how to show affection. And this is the priest really is one of his only confidants, one of his only friends. He's yeah. been it's it's established that he's a man of God. He prays all the time and he uh, he goes to church more often than anybody, according to the according to the priest. Yet he, all he knows how to do is to give this guy shit and to make his day miserable. And I thought that was an interesting uh side of this character uh, the, this character also I should just say about Clint Eastwood as talented as the guy is for sure and I haven't seen a whole lot of his discography but his range is just zero isn't it if he's if he's not the grumpy grizzled old man like I, I have not seen him in a movie where he doesn't play that character and like if you watch Million Dollar Baby and then watch uh, Gran Torino You'll think it's a sequel. You'll think it's the same <laughs> character who's just gone off and found some other life, right? It's true. Uh, he doesn't. He really doesn't have much range. Uh, I should take a look at some of his filmography to see if uh, if he has done something else at the box. Um, I I don't have a problem with people that don't have a lot of range as long as they excel at what they do. And oh, and don't, don't get me wrong. He does excel in this role. He is quite good. I I really love him in this role. I I love that he got a nomination. Again, he wasn't going to win because this is uh, this is a powerhouse year for the winner, um, who was going to win the moment the movie was released. Um, but um, I really liked uh, Eastwood's performance in here. Um, but we've really been talking a lot about Eastwood and uh, Morgan Freeman, but we haven't really talked about Hilary Swank too much, um, who is who wins her second Oscar um, with this role, uh, and it's well-deserved. Um, she is touching. She is strong. Um, she is um, a, a, just a, a truly great, nuanced character um, pulled um, by Hilary Swank. It, it's a well-deserved win. Uh, and I was really, go I remember going into these Oscars, and I I'd, I'd seen um, I'd seen this movie obviously, and then the other ones for Best Actress, 
Um, Annette Benning and Bealing Julia I hadn't seen. Uh, Catalina Sandino Moreno, Maria Faro Grease I hadn't seen. Uh, Imelda Staunton for Vera Drake I hadn't seen, but obviously I'd seen Kate Winslet in Eternal Sunshine, who I was hoping to win. Um, but I, I also thought that Kate might win because Hillary had already won. And I like that Hillary Swank won because she deserved it and not it was uh, a payback for one that she didn't win or anything like that. Like um, like I've said before, for Denzel winning Training Day, he he didn't get that Oscar for Training Day. He got it because he should have won for Malcolm X. Yeah. Um, and as I, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Leo didn't deserve the Oscar. Or I shouldn't say he didn't deserve it, but he didn't earn the Oscar with The Revenant. He earned it with his body of work leading up to that point. Yeah. And and that's always unfortunate. It's one of the the, the politics in the Academy Awards is something that uh, that's always going to be there, and hopefully it just doesn't show its ugly head too often. Um, but Hillary, oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, of course, as we all know, that Swank uh, won her other Academy Award for her portrayal of Brandon Tina in Boys Don't Cry, which I of course knew without looking it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> How could you even suggest otherwise? <laughs> Have you seen Boys Don't Cry? What an insulting question. No. <laughs> it's good, and her uh, it, that is an, uh, another Oscar, uh, obviously Oscar-worthy performance. Um, it, it's, it's a really, it is a really good movie, and her, it's, a, it's a well-deserved win. Like that, it, it's a phenomenal powerhouse performance. Um, the, um, I, have a, I have a couple. Uh, with this, I, I found some really tasty trivia. Um, one, uh, Hillary Swank, uh, actually contracted a bacterial infection from a blister she developed on her foot during training for the role. The infection was so serious that she almost had to be hospitalized for three weeks. Catching the infection in the nick of time, she instead chose to take a week off of, uh, for medicated rest and didn't tell Clint Eastwood or the other producers of the film about the injury because she didn't believe it was in character. Aw, that's that's actually that's insanely dangerous, probably, but also kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah, um, when it comes to uh, other people in roles, uh, here's an interesting one. Morgan Freeman was actually originally approached to play the role of Frankie Dunn, the one that Clint Eastwood did. Um, but even before Clint Eastwood took on directing and starring roles, he decided to take the part of Scrap Iron. Um, Paul Haggis, the writer was actually uh, scheduled to direct this film until Clint Eastwood came along and asked to direct it. Uh, and Haggis uh, agreed to step aside uh, so uh, Clint Eastwood could direct it. Um, and then two women were... Uh, one woman was actually originally attached to play Maggie, and that was Sandra Bullock. No. I agree. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a no from me. Yeah. Um, but she uh, she had a commitment to another film, the uh, the fantastic <laughs> film uh, Miss Congeniality Two. Oh, also nominated for Best Picture, right? <laughs> oh no, it wasn't. Oh, That's okay. correct. Uh, the other person that was actually in consideration to play the role of Maggie was Ashley Judd, um, which would have actually been a, a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good role for her. Uh, and I could see I could understand her doing a pretty good thing. Um, the other little tidbit I had about it, uh, this, uh, for people that don't know, um, 
Clint Eastwood is uh, a very fast-working director. He doesn't believe in a lot of takes. Uh, and as soon as he sees and gets what he wants, he basically cuts right there, and then they move on. So this film was shot in 37 days. That is fucking short. Yeah. Especially when, you, uh, when you've already watched The Aviator, where movies were shot over the course of years. Yes. That's nuts. Um, but that's all I had um, for um, for Million Dollar Baby. Um, I don't really uh, I don't really have much else to say. Um, I, I did I did like it. Uh, oh, you had some you had some quips about it or problems with it that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, I mean there there are a bunch of little things um, that you know I love being a, a nitpicky asshole. That's mm. why I'm I'm talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's a guy that I actually really like in this movie who's gained some fame, some fame, excuse me, um, and that is there's three Jay people. Baruchel. Oh, there's three people actually. There's Anthony Mackie, um, Jay Baruchel, and Michael Pena. Yeah, uh, two of whom are quite good, and the other is named Jay Baruchel. <laughs> uh, he's annoying as fuck in this movie. Yeah. I didn't like his character at all. I fucking like, and I like. I actually like Jay Baruchel. He's part of the part of a crew sort of that I don't think you're a particularly big fan of the whole James Franco, sure Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, nope. uh, all those sorts of guys. Nope. So I, I actually like those guys and I like Jay Baruchel, but fuck is he ever annoying in this movie? God damn. Um, the others, uh, Anthony Mackie and Michael Pena are quite good. Um, I didn't get the scene of them beating the shit out of Jay Baruchel. I didn't get it. Didn't get why it's in the movie. Um, didn't I guess it was so that he could come back stronger at the end and persevere, and the cycle could sort of continue, mm-hmm. and we could get somebody else who's all heart who just wants to wants to learn how to fight, which is fine. But as the scene was happening, I was like, this is really out of place and weird. Like just I, I felt that the dynamic between the other people in the gym, if you wanted to include that scene, should have had a little bit more focus on it personally. Oh, I actually forgot to say there's actually four other people. Ooh, who else? Uh, I don't know if you... I, he's hard to recognize, but Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter? Who in God's name is that? Luke Cage. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. As soon as I saw him, I'm like, holy fuck, that's Luke Cage. <laughs> yeah, now that, I'm, uh, now that I have him pulled up, he's a pretty recognizable dude, so no surprises there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, all in all, I, I really enjoyed Million Dollar Baby. Um, it, uh, it, uh, it, it, it really, it really hit home with me. Um, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed rewatching this. Um, I, I did want to say, yeah. um, I know you haven't started watching BoJack Horseman yet. No. Um, but there's a whole plot line with, uh, Margot, Mar, Mar- let me try to say this again, Margot Martindale. There's, uh, she's the character actress who plays uh, Hillary Spank's mom in this movie, as well as, you know, she's in a billion other things. Mm. Pretty underappreciated actress. But in the TV show Bojack Horseman, which is on Netflix, and you should go watch right now if you haven't already, um, there's a whole plot line of her being, like, a master criminal, and she, like, plays herself. She's referred to in the show as esteemed character actress Margot Martindale and fugitive <laughs> from the law. 
there's just this whole <laughs> B plot of her like robbing banks and like killing people and shit. It's the stupidest thing ever, but it's really funny. And she's always a uh, an accessory to Bojack's antics, and it's really funny. Awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so randomly seeing her and shit, I'm always just like, oh damn, it's Margot Martindale, or it's esteemed character actress Margot Martindale and fugitive from the law. <laughs> um, one last thing, and then we can move on from uh, Million Dollar Baby. I didn't understand why uh, the bitch that she faces at the end, the dirty fighter from East Germany, why she's allowed to fight. Uh, you're a bigger boxing fan than I, mm-hmm. so you can definitely tell me what justifies a suspension or uh, or a ban or you know whatever you want to call it. But given the history that's been established with this fighter, I don't understand why this fight is happening. And given some of the things that happened in the fight, it arguably should have been stopped sooner. Um, I was wondering what your take on that was. Money. <laughs> it's all money. Um, the, bo- uh, the boxing world is incredibly corrupt. Um, to give you a, a, recent, uh, a, a recent example of... I don't have anything to back it up, um, but this past Saturday was a massive heavyweight championship fight between Deontay Wilder and Tyson Fury. Uh, 12 rounds. Um, I didn't watch it, um, but I got kind of a play-by-play through a couple podcasts and uh, a friend of mine, uh, shout out to Chad, um, who watched the fight. And um, Tyson Fury, uh, from my understanding... Uh, completely outboxed Deontay Wilder for the majority of the fight. In two of the rounds, though, Deontay Wilder knocked down Tyson Fury. <clears throat> in boxing scoring, if you knock somebody down, it's an automatic 10-8 instead of a 10. In, in, in MMA, it's a 10. It'd be a 10-9. So with him knocking him down twice, that's two 10-8 rounds. Um, so that leaves 10 other rounds uh, to score between Tyson and... Uh, Deontay. Most people feel that out of those remaining 10, that um, <clears throat> that uh, Fury probably won 8 of them. So by that scoring, um, Fury should have won. Uh, the, 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 the official decision was a draw. Um, so a, a lot of people are up in arms. Um, <clears throat> one of the judges actually scored the fight for Deontay Wilder because he he is more marketable, he is undefeated, uh, and he makes a lot more money. Um, under no circumstances from anybody that I've ever heard, and granted in my limited boxing knowledge circle, that's only four or five people, including the podcast I listen to, has anybody even remotely said that Deontay in the scoring of the fight should have won. So this judge that scored it for Deontay, and it wasn't even close, like he had Deontay winning like the majority of the fight, shows the corruption or the idi- or slash the idiocy of this. It's not the first time um, this has happened. Uh, a lot of fighters try their best to not allow it to go to the judges' scorecards because they know, depending on where you're fighting, If you're from, say, if you're from England, like Tyson Fury is, and comes over to the States, where Deontay Wilder's from, if you go to the judges' scorecards, you're probably not going to win. Um, So it's, but it's all about money. It's all about money. So the fact that this female boxer is a dirty fighter, um, but 
and the, and Morgan Freeman says that uh, she's known for being dirty, but the fans love her, so she's a draw. Boxing commissions will turn the other will turn the other eye because they want the money, 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 money. Well, that was a full-on essay with a thesis statement and everything. I, <laughs> I, I'm not even being sarcastic. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'd say that is an excellent conclusion to uh, to the million dollar baby section. Oh, but we're not done. We have to do our favorite scene. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you go if your voice isn't already tired? Uh, my favorite scene. Holy. Um, what would it be? so unprepared for the favorite scene I can't believe and this is like one of my favorite parts to do um gosh you know what I, it would have to, it would have to be like the montage of her continually winning and him like not even getting the stool down before she's knocked out the opponent and she just gives him that little shoulder shrug and smirk like my bad sorry sorry boss um that's that would probably be my favorite scene is is those that is that montage um i i can't remember one particular scene um that really stood out for me it's just an overall good movie uh for me my favorite scene in this movie is probably the broken nose fight uh where she gets uh she gets her cut fixed by uh, clint eastwood and he basically tells her you got 20 seconds to go out there and knock this bitch out. So <laughs> you better you better go do it. And uh, she does it. And I love the reaction. I love the whole way that the fight plays out. Um, it was it was pretty awesome. Awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, moving on to the fourth Best Picture nominee, Ray. Ray was directed by Taylor Hackford and written by Taylor Hackford uh, with some help from James L. White. Uh, 73 Metascore, a budget of $40 million, it grossed 124 It won two Oscars this year, uh, Best Actor for Jamie Foxx and Best Sound Mixing. Four other nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director for Hackford, Best Film Editing, and Best Costume Design. The plot, the story and the, of the life and career of the legendary rhythm and blues musician Ray Charles from his humble beginnings in the South, where he went blind at age seven, to his meteoric rise to stardom during the 1950s and 60s. Surprisingly, and I'm actually surprising, surprised by this, is that you hadn't seen this film. Sam, your thoughts on Ray? Yeah, so anybody who knows me, um, obviously I'm a big movie nerd, that's why I'm sitting here where I am talking to <laughs> Um but I was a big jazz band nerd back in high school. I was a I was a trumpet player. I still play drums, sort of. <laughs> it's been a while since I've had a place to actually set up my kit. But uh, yeah, I used to play uh, trumpet in a jazz band when I was in high school and a little bit of drums. Um, so Ray Charles, as far as uh, you know, jazz and gospel and uh, and R and B and all these different uh, genres from the way way back. Um, really just get me and the music in this movie got me it i was just grooving the entire time i was having an awesome time manny and i talk about film scores when we talk about these movies but the soundtrack to this movie fucking a it uh it is one of the highlights that i wanted to focus on right off the bat because ray charles had hit after hit after hit and it was interesting to me that uh when George on my mind uh, was written and performed in this movie that it was kind of shrugged off by critics. Cause that's one of his most famous songs, of course. Yep. 
and a song that uh, Ray Charles fans all the world over love. But at the time that it was written, it was sort of like, oh, yawn, he's gone mainstream, he's uh, he's got no edge to him. Um, but yeah, it was interesting for me to see that. Um, outside of the, the wonderful, wonderful soundtrack, um, what's, I guess Jamie Foxx is the obvious next place you would go. Um, really a mammoth performance, well-deserving of the best actor uh, win. Not really a surprise. The man is honestly one of the most underrated actors out there. Probably, uh, obviously, he has the he has the Oscar win, so maybe that's not a completely accurate statement. But he's certainly one of the most talented guys out there, in my opinion. Still, um, he's also a sample. He's also a sample winner. Yes, that's right. Uh, he he obviously <laughs> on the uh, Sam and Manuel podcast awards, uh, Jamie Fox won best villain for uh, for his portrayal of bats in Baby Driver. Thank you for the reminder. Sir. <laughs> he won without even being nominated because I forgot to put him on the nomination list. <laughs> That's uh, probably still my favorite moment in our podcast. Is that moment? Fuck, that was forever ago. It really was. Yeah. Um, I guess I was just supposed to give my overall thoughts, but I got, went on a little bit of a tangent. Hey, so right. my, my overall thoughts are the music, the acting uh, are excellent. Honestly, the I don't often say this about a movie that I actually like, but the worst part of it is the plot. I honestly was less interested by the plot than I was by just having a good time listening to the music mm-hmm. and watching Jamie Foxx at the height of his powers. It was, uh, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Awesome. Yeah. I was, uh, I was super excited for you to watch this, uh, finding out that you hadn't seen it yet. Um, I'm, I was really looking forward to your, uh, your reaction to it, knowing how much you love music, especially this kind of music, uh, and how much you love film. So this was exciting for me. I, I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I'm right with you. Um, I, I love this movie. Um, and again, the music is the music, and Jamie Foxx's performance are the highlight of these movies. Um, they're worth the price of admission alone. Um, other performances uh, by some of the other actors are great. Um, and I agree, the story's not... It's as shitty as it is, it's a standard music biopic. Uh, poor kid comes up from nothing, becomes a superstar, shows the world what true talent really is, um, deals with uh, addictions and problems, um, and comes out on the other side. Uh, sometimes they don't come out on the other side, um, but Ray Charles does. Does um, this is. Um, this is a fantastic film and well-deserved of every nomination and every win that it got. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm trying to look through my notes, find specifics that, uh, that I wanted to point out about this movie. One of them is just right off the bat. Uh, I immediately was interested in this movie and in this character and in this portrayal when uh, he's boarding the bus at the beginning and he pulls that bullshit out of his ass about, <laughs> uh, about losing his eyes on the beach in Normandy just to get by and just shows you the kind of things that, as a blind black man in the South in the 50s, what kind of shit he had to do to survive. What, what he, it, It's shown numerous times in this movie just how he's beaten down and ignored and even taken advantage of because of his disability. And he's he's a smart guy. Like, yeah. take, like something as small as the uh, getting paid in ones thing. Obviously, he had his entire life to sort of realize that was the way to do it. But that's just something I w- 
Like, I would never fucking think of. Like, if I had any sort of disability, I would be so fucked. Because <laughs> <laughs> the shit like that, I like, I would I would be underpaid every single gig that I played. Like, no question. Um, so, yeah, there were a bunch of little details like that. The Normandy story, as well as uh, just his, his day-to-day life, uh, I found pretty interesting. Yeah, I agree. Um, and this is all a, a testament to, to both Ray Charles um, and... Uh, Jamie Foxx's performance. Um, there's lots of um, there's lots of things that I really enjoyed about this movie. Starting off with the opening shot, the opening shot of the reflection off of his iconic sunglasses of him playing piano, beautiful shot. Uh, I'm really surprised that this didn't get a nomination for best cinematography because I really like the way that this movie is shot. Um, I love the way that his childhood is in very um, very vivid colors. Um, which is funny because usually when they play uh, flashbacks or old-time stuff, they kind of mute the colors, but this is very bright. Um, probably most well, most likely because this is when Ray Charles could see. Um, but even after he's uh, struck with his blindness, they don't change the palette uh, of those flashback scenes as he's learning to deal with it. Um, and then speaking of those flashback scenes, um, his uh, performance by his mother... Uh, who plays Ray's mother, uh, Sharon Warren, uh, phenomenal. Um, I really loved her. Um, I love the strength that she had and how, well, uh, the movie portrays her as a strong single mother who's not going to allow uh, her son to be taken advantage of or to allow people to feel sorry for him. Um, She makes him stand up and be a man. Um, even at a young age, and I, I really those scenes as a father uh, really hit home. Yeah, I, I agree that the scenes of Ray's childhood were quite strong. Um, definitely partially because of his mother. You can tell the influence that she had on just his life philosophy in general, um, and the effect that she had on his life. Of course, towards the end of the movie, he needs to be sort of uh, reminded of some of the lessons that she taught him. Uh, but overall, I loved the impact that these scenes had on the on the rest of the movie and the repercussions that they had for Ray as an individual. I will say, uh, these flashback scenes with them being overly... They have the contrast bumped right up. It, and I think there were a couple of slow-mo moments, even if I remember correctly. I would have to double-check on that. But at moments, it reminds me of Michael Bay. Just visually, mm-hmm. it, you got oh. these... You got these extreme close-ups with high contrast color. It reminded me a lot of Michael Bay. Am good. I? Am I? That? No, that's a good call. Good call on that. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna double check. Uh, I'm gonna I was double- half. I was half expecting just their house to just burst into flames and have big explosions and have giant robots fall out of the sky or something like that. Because visually, it looks a lot like Michael Bay. Yeah, I. I, I can. Wow, that's really. And I, hey, that's not even a knock because. Say what you will about Michael Bay and his filmmaking, dude knows how to make shit on screen look good. Yeah, he is a. Uh, he doesn't know doesn't know how to tell a story to save his life, but he if there's something on screen, you best believe it's gonna either be brightly colored or have boobs. Just quickly, I just wanted to quickly go through the cinematographers, see if he's done any. Nope. No, he hasn't done any Michael Bay films. Uh, he's Polish. Interesting, but a couple of the other movies he's done uh, are pretty good, especially uh, the pianist. 
um, which we'll be uh, which we'll be watching uh, shortly. Actually, um, one of the other things I wanted to say uh, going into this movie, um, I was excited to watch it because I knew it was just going to hammer home how bad of a movie Bohemian Rhapsody is, uh, and it and it succeeded in that. This is what a good music biopic can be as opposed to the shit that Bohemian Rhapsody was. Um, my coworker Brian, uh, he went and saw Bohemian Rhapsody, and I told him uh, when he was going to go see it, I, I told him, and I, which I've said to you, I'm like, if you're a Queen fan, you're going to be entertained um, by Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, if you're a big Queen fan who actually knows the story of Queen and a lot of the intricate details of both uh, Queen and uh, Freddie Mercury, you're going to be offended at the liberties they took throughout the movie. Um, and Brian told me flat out, he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, a lot of that movie really pissed me off. But the one thing that we both agreed upon was the final 20 minutes of the Live Aid performance is basically worth the price of admission alone. Um, I don't know how fast and loose uh, they played with the facts uh, with Ray. Um, but uh, at least uh, in this movie, um, it's really – it's just a good movie, <laughs> flat out. Yeah, there is, there is a section on Wikipedia, um, the differences from noted events. The, just scanning through it, the big one that stands out to me is during the final scene in the film when Charles' version of Georgia On My Mind becomes Georgia's state song, Charles is congratulated by his wife, Della, and a resolution is also passed – to lift the lifetime ban he had received in 1962 after he declared he would no longer perform at segregated public facilities. In reality, by the time Georgia On My Mind became Georgia's state song in 79, Charles and Della had already divorced, so she wasn't present when Charles performed at the Georgia State Legislature. Mm. And since he had never been banned from performing in Georgia in the first place, no such resolution was ever passed. So mm. that entire scene was basically just fabricated. Ah, from fair enough. What I That's one example. And hey, as long as it's a good movie in general, I'm okay with it. And I even think that, uh, this is a little bit off topic, but when, even when it comes to like adaptations from novels or even adaptations from comic book movies, I think I'm in the minority when I say the faithfulness to the source material, or in this case, the faithfulness to reality, is secondary to making a good movie, in my opinion. Not that it's not important, but as long as the movie is good, it becomes less important. Am I am I wrong in thinking that? I can see both sides of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely a topic for another thing because I could really dive into that one. Yeah, we we'll could fucking we can we'll, go on a rant. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll save that. that um, but touching on uh, his wife uh, Della uh, Della Bay, um, he there's there was one scene where he first sleeps with her. He kept his sunglasses on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I mean wouldn't you I, uh, I, he uh, he doesn't have sight but he knows that you know his uh his eyes aren't the most attractive things in the world right i guess i just found it i just found it odd mm. <laughs> yeah fair enough um one thing i didn't like about this movie uh, i found it um, i don't want to say jarring but uh i don't know annoying was how they insert, in, inserted old vintage footage in the movie. 
like they would he would be in like as an example uh, like when he went to Seattle in the 1950s you you're watching this 2004 film this great cinematography and then it inserted actual footage of Seattle in 1950s that you can tell is vintage not shot with the same camera it's just like old film footage it's completely out of place and i was like i don't understand why you do this like you don't have to, you you you've already established it's seattle in this time and they do that numerous times for different places and i'm like this is unnecessary and is completely visually different from everything else in the movie yeah now that you mention it uh it's almost a little bit lazy just because instead of shooting your own B-roll and shooting your own establishing shots mm-hmm. of different cities and creating these sets and creating these environments, yeah, you just go back in time and say, yeah, well, the average film goer or the average movie goer won't notice that, uh, you know, it's maybe a little bit grainier or it's, uh, it you know, might not notice or might not care about these different things, but it's little, it's attention to little details like that, which really, make the difference when it comes to these Oscar caliber movies, in my opinion. So I, I can definitely see where you're coming from. Yeah. Um, couple pieces of trivia. Uh, Denzel Washington was originally, uh, approached for the, for the lead role. I don't know how that would have played out. Well, it's easy for us to say in hindsight that, you know, anybody other than Jamie Foxx would feel weird in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, of the other options available, I mean, Denzel Washington is one of the, another one of the best living actors, um, and he's proven himself time and time again. So if there is someone else who could have taken on this role, it probably would have been him. There's no one I even want to think about taking this role away from Jamie Foxx, though. It's truly one of the best performances in the last couple decades. Yeah, totally agree. Um, speaking of Jamie Foxx, uh, Jamie Foxx did play all the piano scenes himself. He did play the piano, um, but I just learned because I actually thought that Jamie Foxx, because I know he can sing, he actually didn't do the singing. Uh, it actually is Ray Charles, um, but uh, the other thing as well, uh, he actually had his eyes glued shut for 12 hours a day during filming um, so he could totally immerse himself in the role. Fuck, that – I mean it, it's so easy for us to just say, oh, that sounds like it would suck. You know what would suck even more? Having your eyes shut for 24 hours a day. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like Mr. Ray Charles. So, like, in probably, like, there's definitely scenes, like, I'm pretty sure, like, any time you could probably see his eyes or any chance of you seeing his eyes, but probably most of the time when he's wearing the sunglasses, he might not have been. Who knows? Um, but it, it's little tidbits like that, like, that actors, you know, take the extra step to add authenticity. Um and it pays off. One other person I'd actually like to highlight is an actress who I don't feel really gets enough credit. And I think this is the year uh, it's finally going to happen for her. And that's uh, Regina King. Um, she plays Mar- uh, Margie Hendricks. Um, one of the – she's kind of like the lead backup singers of the – that end up becoming the Raylettes. Not the uh, – um, not the one he first starts sleeping with, but the second one, um, the one that goes a little crazy. Uh, of course, the the first one that he has the affair with, she throws a brick through his car. Um, but this is the one that he 
I think she ends up getting pregnant. I can't remember. So she's yes. getting pregnant. Um, but I've always been a big fan of Regina King. Uh, and this is um, this is a really good role for her. Um, she's The talk right now is that she's probably going to get uh, a Best Supporting Actress nomination for... Um, uh, if Beale Street could talk. Thank you. Yeah, the new Barry Jenkins movie. Um, there's big buzz... Uh, on her uh, probably taking home the gold statue this year. Um, I've always been a big fan of her. Um, so uh, I'm, a, I'm a, it was, I actually completely forgot she was in this movie. Um, but you first, of course, recognized her from Miss Congeniality 2, right? That's <laughs> how first recognized her. Good day for Miss Congeniality 2. Two shout outs on the Samuel Emanuel movie podcast. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. Th- other than that, um, just the music, the music and and uh, and Jamie Fox just elevate Ray to a to a whole new level. Yeah, I would uh, I would echo that. I, I think the stars of this movie. I mean, Jamie Fox is an obvious one, but I have so much fun with the music in this movie, um, especially, um, you know, when there's an artist as storied and legendary as Ray Charles and someone who has as wide a discography as he does, it's easy to just sort of think of his work as one collective thing that's always existed. Um, But I love watching... uh, And I I love seeing the way that the transitions and the the evolution of his movie... Excuse me. The evolution of his music was emphasized in this movie. So, for example, The Mess Around is an iconic Ray Charles song. Um, but I loved the way the movie emphasized that at the time he, he didn't really feel like that was him. I mean, he didn't even write the song for one thing, but he hadn't really found his sound as this gospel singer, uh, at the point. And, uh, it was something that is touched on briefly that I, I thought it was, it was nice. So the combination of the performances and just the, the music history in this movie just made it a music nerd's wet dream. Nice. Uh, Oh, did you have any, did you have something else, Sam? No, nope, we were oh. uh, we were going to favorite scene. I think we were. Who favorite scene? Huh, favorite scene, favorite scene. I can't think of one. Uh, I got one. If you're if you're a little bit uh, if you're struggling for one, yeah, fire away. Uh, one of the flashbacks to his childhood. Uh, there's oh. a completely musicless uh silent scene uh, not totally silent there's sound effects added in um but where he is learning to deal with his blindness after he's thrown his tantrums he's uh really struggled to come to terms with it there's a moment where he falls down on the floor and has a tantrum and is screaming for his mom and his mom is right there and she refuses to help him up and you can sort of see with the camera work how he's learning to harness his other senses um, to maneuver around and to get by, and it's a really well constructed visual moment, um, which is sort of ironic in a movie about a blind guy. But uh, it it's just sort of it, it was a really effective moment to show a pretty formative moment in Ray Charles' life. Yeah, as soon as you start talking, I'm like, I'm like, that's the same for me too. When when he is first learning he can you know he can hear the cricket walking on the ground he can hear the steam coming out of the kettle um he can hear the cow uh outside the house uh it is a really good scene 
um, that will be the highlight for me. I, I guess, like, any scene where Ray is singing was another highlight um, because Jamie Foxx's performance, which, again, I I remember at the time thinking that it actually was him singing um, and being astounded that he sounded so much like Ray Charles. Um, but the fact that he also learned the piano is nice. Um, but, yeah, that, that would be my pick is uh, is that scene. Sorry, I do have two more tiny little tidbits before we can move on. I know yeah. we sort of made final thoughts. All um, good. One, there is a scene of Ray Charles in rehab where he's playing chess of all games. Of course, anyone who listened to the Inception episode knows that I'm a big chess nerd. Um, and I can tell you that the board is accurate. There's always, <laughs> whenever, there's, whenever there's chess in movies, chess nerds always try to dissect it like oh could you actually like get to that position or did somebody just sort of put pieces on a board willy-nilly it's a pretty famous position called the four move checkmate ray charles sucks to chess you uh, <laughs> fucking nerd i know I that know. is easily the nerdiest thing either one of us has ever said on this podcast yeah the fa- <laughs> i was thinking about this today actually the fact that i have a movie podcast and it's only the second nerdiest thing about me really says a lot about who I am as a person, I think. But I have no shame, man. I have no shame. Um, fucking fly that fucking chest nerd flag, my friend. That was fantastic. <laughs> that literally made my day. I had I a shitty day. This podcast was great, but this was the highlight for me. This this is the, this and me coughing over your talking highlights of the day for me. This is a good episode. It's going well. <laughs> uh, plenty of time for it to go off the rails, though. The only other thing I wanted to say was that uh, at times it was difficult for me to take this movie seriously because one of my favorite underrated comedies, uh, and that is Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, is almost a direct parody of this movie. Um, it's, it's a parody of uh, Ray and of uh, Walk the Line. Uh it, that's a really actually underrated comedy that's really funny that plays off a lot of these tropes. There's one trope in Dewey Cox in particular where every time he walks into a bathroom, who's, his bandmates are in there doing drugs, and every time it's a different drug that they introduce him to. So when Ray walks into the bathroom and everyone's doing heroin, I, I was sort of had a good laugh. And uh, <laughs> o- only other thing I wanted to say about that is that Dewey's mom in that movie, played by esteemed character actress Margot Martindale. <laughs> <laughs> And bank robber, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, fugitive from the law. Oh, fugitive from the law. My apologies. Uh, anyway, that's all I have to say about that. That's enough of uh, me nerding out. Uh, go watch Ray and go watch Walk Hard the Dewey Cox story and go learn how to play chess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice public service announcement. Thank you. Yeah. This, this episode of the Samuel Manuel Movie <laughs> Podcast brought to you by chess. <laughs> and Bojack Horseman, I guess. Oh, so good. All, All right, right, move on before I embarrass myself further. The final film that was nominated this year for Best Picture is Sideways, uh, directed and written by Alexander Payne, uh, based on the Rex Pickett novel. has a 94 Metascore, which might be the highest Metascore we've had on any of the films that we've done. Yeah, when I was looking this up beforehand, I had to do a double take at that. Uh, 94 is massive. Yeah. Uh, $12 million budget, it grossed 109 uh, It won one Oscar uh, for Best Adapted Screenplay. Had four other nominations, including, obviously, like I've said every time, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Thomas Hayden Church, Best Supporting Actress for Virginia Madsen, and Best Director for Alexander Payne. Uh, the plot, 
Two men reaching middle age with not much to show but disappointment embark on a week-long road trip through California's wine country, just as one is about to take a trip down the aisle. Sam, Sideways. Uh, Sideways is one that completely was not even close to my radar. Um, I was unaware this movie existed, let alone was nominated for Best Picture. Um, I do like me some Paul Giamatti. I have not delved as deep into his filmography as I might have liked. Um, Thomas Hayden Church, uh, am I getting that name right? Yep. Uh, uh, Yeah, Thomas Hayden Church uh, was someone that I honestly really didn't know. Uh, To me, he was uh, Sandman from Spider-Man 3, which is a depressing thing to say, but a true thing nonetheless. Um, This is a movie that I didn't even know what the fuck to expect. And I was pretty pleasantly surprised. It wasn't my favorite of this year, and 94 Metascore is ridiculously high, in my opinion. Uh, Way, way, way too high. Nonetheless, this movie has a lot to offer. It has some really funny scenes. It has some great dialogue, some really crazy dialogue about wine in particular. Whoever wrote this was either a wine snob, or they did their fucking research. Uh, because there's a lot about wine in this movie. That's one of the areas where it maybe goes a little bit overboard for me. I could have used a little more of Paul Giamatti talking about literally anything else. (laughs) But uh, besides that, I thought it was pretty good. Um, At times, maybe Paul Giamatti's character is a little bit difficult to root for. Mm. He's, I guess, supposed to be a little bit of a scumbag, a little bit of an asshole. But especially the scene at the beginning where he's stealing from his mom, like, that just, like, didn't... I know it's not supposed to endear me to him, but I already had a tough time cheering for him leading up to that, and then that happened, and then other shitty things happened. Like, God, this is a really difficult guy to root for. Um, And the only thing that makes him even remotely redeemable is that his buddy, played by Thomas Hayden Church, is even more of a despicable asshole. (laughs) (laughs) So by comparison, Paul Giamatti looks like a saint. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll get into all that stuff later and I'll, I'll let you talk for a little bit but yeah overall I, I was surprised because I was not aware this movie existed um, and it, it was pretty enjoyable I, I liked it uh, what are your general thoughts sir uh, yeah I actually didn't know that it had such a high meta score but I understand uh, I can understand why it has such a high score because um, this movie if you look at it from like an artistic point of view which is mostly what metascore is is for is by critics um this is like a, a critic darling um the the dialogue like you said is top notch obviously with the best adapted screenplay win uh alexander payne is a fantastic writer director um he i'm actually was surprised that giamatti didn't get a nomination um, for this role, uh, I really liked him in this role. I agree, he is uh, a hard guy to root for, but the nuances of this character, his, I guess for lack of a better word, his patheticness, um, his incredibly low self esteem, um, and then uh, his love for wine from this movie. Um, I understand him wanting to talk about anything else other than wine, but his love for wine is so passionate. It's really the only thing in life that he's truly passionate about. He's not even that passionate about his writing, um, which is supposed to be his profession, um, even though he's a literary professor, I believe, or 
or is a high school teacher. I can't remember. I think he's a high school teacher. High school yeah. teacher. Um, but his passion for wine, um, his love of wine, especially the monologue, the two monologues he has about wine. Uh, one, the one at the winery at the first tasting, and then when him and uh, Maya are talking about their love of wine, um, actually touched me um, and made me curious about wine. Um, wine's something I've always been intrigued by. Um, I love that the exact same grapes grow differently in different areas and the wines can taste different um, and that there's a true art form to making wine. Um, if I was to be a drinker, uh, wine is probably where I'd like to go um, because of that difference, because of the art of making wine. Um, yeah, that's my general thoughts. I want to dive more into the movie now. Um, like I said, Miles' passion for wine is just a joy to watch. Um, that first, that first scene at that first tasting they go to, he just goes off about. He's smelling the wine. He's tasting the wine. He's talking about the flavors he can smell and the flavors he can taste. And his friend Jack, who knows nothing about wine, is on board, and he's enthralled watching his friend do this. And then it ends. Are you chewing gum? That line got a belly laugh from me with oh. Paul his delivery. That line got a belly laugh. That was good. Oh, it was so good. And yeah, Thomas Hayden Church, it's so funny. You see him and you think of him as Sandman. Thomas Hayden Church actually had, um, he was on a really popular 90s sitcom called Wings. Uh, and he was a supporting actor um, on that role. And he played this complete idiot. Um, that's where I know Thomas Hayden Church from. Um, I love Jack. Jack, while a despicable man, is fucking hilarious. He cracks me up so many times. He might be one of the greatest wingmen ever. He is so supportive of trying to get Miles laid, trying to do everything he can to help Miles out, and he gets to the breaking point and to the point where he's just like, you know what? I've tried to be nice. Fuck you. I'm just going to – if you're not going to be – the friend I need this week, then I'm just going to go do my own shit. And the shit he does is not great, but he fucking cracks me up. Um, yeah, Jack's a great character. He has so many good lines. Um, I, I don't have any of them written down, but he acts as such a good counterpoint to Paul Giamatti. That's the thing that I really like about their chemistry is that it really comes from, in a way, you almost question how the fuck these two can even be as close friends as they are. Because they're just so opposite from one another. Yes. All Giamatti is this pathetic loser. Uh, and Thomas Hayden Church is just, he just oozes confidence. Uh, it, to use one of my favorite quotes from Moneyball, he's the kind of guy who walks into a room and his dick's already been there for two minutes. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's just so supremely confident and is just so confident that him and his buddy are going to get laid this weekend. And then Paul Giamatti just stews in this pit of loathing and loneliness and sadness yes and I, that and bitterness that dichotomy is played for comedy so many times and they they milk it dry it's awesome yeah yeah this is this is an act this is an actor's paradise this movie these two roles and actually and and the role of maya uh played by virginia madsen she has a lot to work with um and that moving like moving on to that that next scene about wine where Miles um, Miles answers the question, why do you love Pinot so much? 
uh, not subtle in that he's actually talking about himself. Um, but him uh, reflecting or using uh, Pino as a metaphor for himself allows him to be vulnerable and allows him to talk about himself without fear. Um, I fucking, that is such a great monologue. And then it's equally returned um, by Maya with her her talking about why she loves wine. Um, and she uses that metaphor, her love of wine, as a way to flirt with Miles. It's such a fantastic scene. Um, and two actors just knocking it out of the park. All while in the meme background, Jack's fucking... Uh, Fucking Sandra, Sa- oh. Fan- fucking Sandra Oh, who I didn't know at the at the time was actually married to the writer director of this movie. Oh, well, he was probably elated to have those scenes in. Yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was trying to find my notes while you were talking about that scene. It is the same scene, right, where uh, he sort of uh, recedes from her advances. She puts her hand on him, and he recedes, and he he definitely becomes a little defensive. Then he goes into the bathroom, yeah. and he's just looking at himself, and he just goes, you are such a fucking loser. Yep, that's that whole scene. Pathetic. And then when he finally builds up the courage uh, to go and approach her, and she turns him down, and the camera stays super distant from it, and you don't get a really intimate look at them, and it feels awkward and weird. It was just such a good scene. Yes. It was such an awkward scene, and it was just really, really effective. And I, I use that word a lot, but... No, it, 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 it's they, that scene was executed exactly as it should have been. It yeah, was... and that's that's one like the nominations for best director here is well deserved. Um, Alexander Payne knows how to tell this story and knows how to frame these actors and he knows how to frame these scenes and how to put a scene together and how to milk it exactly for what it does. The scenes where Miles is like when Miles gets drunk, he's just such a fucking dick and he's just wrecking everything and Jack's trying so hard to save the night and he can't and his friend's just being such a dick oh, the, like yeah the chemistry between these actors and the actresses is just phenomenal um, I, I wonder like if any true wine connoisseurs out there have seen this movie I wonder what they think of this movie um, because the the knowledge of wine um, it is, uh, fantastic, but one of the, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I was going to go, uh, in a completely separate direction. Uh, it, you, you finish your point. I, I had this, I had this little piece of trivia that I actually didn't write down, but I just remembered that made me laugh. Um, one of the, I think it's the first winery they go to for their tasting is, I think it's called, uh, Frass Vineyards or something like that. And, um. I know it's called Frass. I just can't remember what the second one is because that's the thing. They pull in because it's kind of like the first one they've seen, and Jack's like, "What about this one?" And Miles says, "You know, this it, they're not no, it's not a good one." And Frass is actually another word for insect excrement. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. That's hilarious. That's a nice little detail. Nice yeah. little subtle jab. Um, the way I was going to go with this, um, I wanted to talk more about Paul Giamatti just because he really is my favorite thing about this movie. Mm-hmm. There's sort of a concept in writing, I guess you could call it an unwritten rule, where you need to be cruel to your characters and you can't let them get everything they want scot-free and you need to have them go through some sort of tribulation in order for the story to be interesting. Paul Giamatti's character gets beaten 
the fucking brain <laughs> in this movie. He goes through so much shit. I don't know how this character even is a shred of like how he even resembles himself anymore. Like he is in a pretty deep pit of despair through most yes. of this movie. That's no secret. But fuck me, like who wouldn't be when you see all the shit that he's been through in this movie? Like he he went through his divorce. He uh, he's been embarrassed numerous times. He got Maya and then lost her. He's embarrassed by Jack the whole time. The scene where his book deal gets rejected is fucking somehow hilarious and sad at the same time. Uh, where he runs into his ex at the end of the movie, like fuck me, like this guy, this poor fucking guy. And again, he's a despicable prick and probably deserves at least some of it. <laughs> But my god, you just kind of want to give him a hug at the end of the movie. <laughs> like, he goes through so much shit. Um, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. He he really could use a, a really great big hug. He does go through a lot, and you do feel for him. And then at times, you're just like, you're kind of a dick. Like, you're, such, <laughs> you're kind of a pussy. Like, you really need to step it up. Like... Yeah, you've been, you know, life's been fucking kicking you in the face, but you should, you really need to stand up. Stop letting life kick you in the face. Yeah, th- this is one of the things I struggled with with this movie, actually. It-, it was one of the things I might just need to think on for a little while longer for how much I really do like this movie, is uh, how how much of his despicable behavior can be forgiven by this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's a question I guess I can pose to you, too, just because... At the beginning of this movie, as I mentioned, he's a liar and a deceiver, and he steals, and he's just a pathetic fucking loser, and he's a buzzkill, and he's boring, and he just has almost no redeeming qualities, and somehow they juggle that with all these sad moments to make you empathize with the guy. That's good writing, in my opinion, yeah. but I wonder how much of it... I'll admit at the beginning of this movie, I wasn't optimistic, just because of how Giamatti's character was being constructed i was like this guy is not relatable to me this guy is not he's not nice he just has no redeeming qualities and like the beginning of the movie suffered i guess for me and then the payoff i guess what i'm asking is is the payoff worth it uh i i don't know you tell me was it (laughs) worth it for you uh it it, it was worth it for me it was worth it for me i i really like this movie um I remember when I saw it, I enjoyed it, uh, and then the chance to rewatch it. Um, I remember sitting down to rewatch it, and I was like, "I'm like, okay, I'm I'm ready to watch Sideways. Um, should be fine." Uh, and then I sat down, and I just got enthralled once again, uh, and it, for exactly the reasons we've already laid out. The the chemistry and the scenes with Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church are just ugh, giggle inducing. The, the two of them are having the time of their lives, um, just loving the characters that Alexander Payne has helped create and the dialogue that he helped write. Um, it, it's just so... Thomas Hayden Church is just infectiously fun. Despite his morals being highly questionable, he's still... He's the kind of guy that I would want to go on a road trip with because I know no matter what, we're going to have a good time. In a way, I, I related to him slightly, uh, Thomas Hayden Church, because I actually lived on a winery for three months uh, when I lived in Germany for a little bit, and 
I felt like him a lot of the time. I was surrounded by Paul Giamatti's people asking me all sorts of questions about the wine and like what I thought and like all the different intricacies of how the grapes are grown. If I could taste and smell certain things, I'm like, I don't fucking know. I just, I, I just want to drink the wine. Like, <laughs> leave me alone. Like I wasn't chewing gum while I was drinking it, mind you. But yeah, I, I loved his. Uh, he's a very confident person, and he manages to. Uh, to push through the initial awkwardness of having to sort of fake it until he makes it. And uh, that was a, was a fun little aspect of his character, I thought. Yeah. There's just really great character moments throughout this movie. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great, it's a great movie. I, I, I really enjoyed this movie. I kind of forgot how much that I liked it until I rewatched it. Um, a couple pieces of trivia. Uh, the food that Miles Jack and Miles' mother consumed during the dinner at Miles' uh, mother's house gave the three actors food poisoning. Well, that's not good. Yeah. Um, during the uh, the scene that I talked about where Miles talks about uh, Pinot, um, sales of Pinot Noir uh, rose more than 20% uh, because uh, over the 2004-2005 Christmas New Year period. Um so I guess that answers my question. If wine lovers actually saw this movie, would they think? Um, but did, did wine lovers go to see this movie and then buy Pinot, or did movie fans see this movie and, like yourself, think, I'm going to get into wine? Fair enough. Totally true. Like, I, I, honestly, honestly, like, I, I've always kind of been fascinated by wine, but rewatching this, I, I, I kind of remember, I remember thinking, like, I fucking want to open a winery. <laughs> Um, on on the flip side, uh, Miles obviously not being a fan of Merlot, because uh, I fucking love that line. If anybody, I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sales dropped for Merlot. <laughs> um, his uh, uh, and then the the fact here, his prized bottle of wine, uh, the 1961 Chateau Cheval Blanc, is actually a blend of Merlot and Cabernet Franc. <laughs> Hypocrite. I know, right? Um, a couple actors, um, one actor in particular, campaigned for the role of Jack. Um, and I think he would have been really good uh, in the role of Jack, uh, but he wasn't cast because he was actually too big of a star. And I agree with that decision by Alexander Payne. Um, but I think he would have been really awesome, and that's George Clooney. Oh, that he would have been a, he would have been great casting. Yeah. I did like the job that was done by Thomas Hayden Church, but yeah, George Clooney would have been a close second. Yeah, for sure. George Clooney, I think, just would have overshadowed the movie too much because this was at the height of George Clooney's superstardom. Clooney mania. Um, yeah. Um, two other people um, actually tested. I shouldn't say tested. Were up for the role for Jack, and again, another one too big of a star, and that's Brad Pitt. And uh, and Aaron Eckhart was the other one. Okay, yeah, I could I could see all of those honestly. Yeah, I, I really pretty... would I really would have loved to have seen George Clooney as Jack. That would have been really good. It, it probably is just because this uh, character. I mean, he's an, this character is an actor, and he's a pretty stereotypical actor at that. He's a womanizer. He's uh, a drinker. He's uh, incredibly charismatic off camera. And all of those guys that you just mentioned definitely fit the bill of uh, stereotypical actor. Um, and then the uh, the house uh, where Miles has to go get Jack's wallet. 
was actually a meth lab to up till a few weeks prior to filming there. So the crew just left everything in the house the way it was. Ugh. That makes me feel gross, but it's also a very nice touch. Yes. Uh, like shit. Oh, those people, like, uh, filming the sex scene in there. Ugh, <laughs> I hope they at least cleaned up the bed. That's, <laughs> that's, just, that's just bad working conditions if they didn't. Very true. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed Sideways. I, I forgot how much I enjoyed it. Um, but again, it's basically on the back of Giamatti and Church. Um, and the dialogue by Alexander Payne carrying this film to, to very high heights. Yeah, I will say, um, in in closing, I guess, that at times I definitely felt this movie dragging a little bit. We haven't talked a whole lot about the plot, because in a way there really isn't one. There's not a whole lot of a plot in this movie outside of um, their budding relationship with these two girls. Um, the star of this movie is the script, uh, and I guess followed closely by Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church. Um, it's a it's a very funny movie. It's a really dark movie. There are some touching moments. There are some funny moments, and it has a really good balance. If there's one criticism I have, sometimes it feels like a lull to me. It's not action packed is the wrong word, even though it's not that either. It's it, there's not a lot of. Um, movement in the plot i guess you can say Mm -hmm. um it's a pretty static movie um and sometimes it it can drag just a hair in my opinion maybe that's just me and maybe that'll improve upon rewatch but the script and the performance is more than make up for it and i was pretty surprised and pretty pleased awesome favorite scene (laughs) i've actually been trying to go back and forth in my head trying to figure it out as we're talking about this as we mentioned we're kind of doing the favorite scene on the fly and there's a bunch that come to mind um there was the the one of paul giamatti standing in the mirror that i was talking about earlier where he's just going you are such a fucking loser uh or there's uh there was one uh, of him phoning his ex at the restaurant that was good but i think the one that i'm gonna land on is uh thomas hayden church begging uh begging miles um i can't remember even what he's begging them for i think it's to not tell uh, yep. not, not to rat him out that yep. he's been cheating. Uh, and he's he's saying, please, like, I know that I'm all these things. I know I'm an asshole. I know I'm, a, but you can't, I can't afford to lose her. I, like, I know I fucked up. I know I did. And he's just, he, his, his confident facade just fades away and reveals someone who's actually a lot like Miles in a way, just this pathetic, nothing individual when all, when all the bells and whistles fall away. And it was an, awesome character moment uh for jack and that scene really stood out to me nice uh for me it's the one that i just can't stop talking about and that's uh him describing his love for pino and maya describing her love for for wine in general um which includes the in the bathroom scene you're such a fucking loser um i absolutely love that scene um it's i'm a big obviously big fan of monologues and so um, two actors just knocking it out of the park. Uh, for me, that was my favorite scene. Also a good choice, for sure. Um, all right, so that, uh, that wraps up our, our uh, discussion of the five uh, Best Picture nominees. Sam, 
In 2005, the uh, Best Picture winner was Million Dollar Baby. Did the Academy get it right? Um, I think it's probably obvious from me talking. I, I don't think that they did. Um, that's just me personally. Um, I, I guess, well, typically what do we do? I guess we do uh, what should have won and what our favorite was, right? Correct. Like two, two separates? Yeah. Arguably, Million Dollar Baby is the right move. Um, it's a very well-crafted movie, but not bulletproof, as uh, as we've talked about. So I guess reluctantly, I would say that they probably did get it right. It's a it's a very iconic movie and very um, very well crafted. <clears throat> um, if I'm to go with what I enjoyed most, though, Ray was a fucking blast. I had so much fun with Ray, um, and just a an iconic performance and a great soundtrack and a uh, even remotely serviceable plot would would do the job, but still quite quite good. Um, yeah. I guess the Academy probably did get it right, um, but my vote would have gone to Ray that year. Okay, well, 13 years hindsight now, which one of these, in your opinion, is the best picture out of these five? Is it Ray? <sighs> Why you got to make this so hard, Manny? <laughs> um, my favorite movie is Ray, but the best picture is probably Million Dollar Baby. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. All right. I remember going back then. I anticipated and wanted Million Dollar Baby to win. So at the time in 2005, I, I think they got it right. Rewatching these movies, I think they got it wrong. I think that Ray is the better picture 13 years later. Um, it is mostly on the back of the performance by Jamie Foxx. But I definitely enjoyed uh, Ray more than Million Dollar Baby now, 13 years later. That being said, um, this crop of movies, these five Best Picture nominees, are completely forgettable for me. This, to me, is a very weak year. Um, because, Well, not because, but these movies are, are ones that I probably... Well, with the exception of Ray, I probably won't watch again. I might watch Sideways again. Um, especially if I meet somebody that's really into wine. I'm like, you need to watch this movie and tell me what you think. Um, but Ray is such a great... It's really carried by the performance of Jamie Foxx. And I remember loading Ray up in my Blu-ray player going, okay, I need to separate Jamie Foxx's performance from this movie. I got to look at this as the movie itself and not Jamie Foxx's performance. And I can't. He's just so fucking good. Um, in this movie that I couldn't. So I'm going to join you. I think now with 13 years hindsight, uh, Ray is the better picture uh, than Million Dollar Baby. Um, it's so close though. Like, it, it, Ray is definitely my favorite of these five. And I just... Uh, I, I just... Go, heading into us recording, I was flip-flopping constantly all day because I didn't know which one I was going to pick so I'm really just going with my gut right now and that's Ray but the, if, if I sit here and I start thinking about it I agree Million Dollar Baby probably is the better picture so it's really hard but I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Ray um, I'm going to rank mine as well so I'm going to go Ray, Million Dollar Baby Sideways, Aviator, Finding Neverland okay um, as long as we're doing that I guess I will follow suit uh, Ray's at the top for me, um, who is going to be tough off the top of my head. So Ray's at the top, 
probably sideways after that. I would even put Aviator above Million Dollar Baby. Uh, that's that's close. Mil- probably Ray sideways, Million Dollar Baby, Aviator, Finding Neverland is going to be my final decision before I go change it a thousand times. Nice. <laughs> um, but of course, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind really is top of that list. Yeah, one hundred percent. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind kicks the shit out of all of these movies, and arguably The Incredibles. Yes, <laughs> totally. Yes. Um, so that wraps up um, our 2005 Oscar retrospective, the 77th Annual Academy Awards. Um, I love doing these episodes. Uh, this is definitely uh, this was definitely one of the years that was uh, uh, of the weaker ones. Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, when we do the 76th um, because it's. Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, Mystic River, and Sea Biscuit. Those, my friend, are fantastic films, and I'm okay. excited. Out okay. of those five, which ones have you seen? Uh, sorry, can you give me the list one more time? Okay, so Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Mm-hmm. Obviously seen it. Yes. Okay, Lost in Translation. Yes, I've seen it. Master and Commander. No. Oh, Mystic River. No. Oh, good. And Sea Biscuit. Probably no. Oh, good. I'm so excited. These yeah. are these are really good movies. These, the... I've, def- I've definitely seen Return of the King, and I've definitely seen Lost in Translation. Perfect. This is this is this is going to be a fun one. Um, so, uh, but that that's going to be a that's a little ways down the road. As with uh, Christmas coming, uh, we can't give ourselves too much uh, too much homework as we're going to be busy. Um, but we have an episode coming up next week, Sam. That. Uh, <laughs> that uh, I think you're pretty excited to uh, to share with our listeners. Yes, well, listeners of the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast will know that to decide who gets to pick movies for the following week, if we are just doing episodes with one movie, uh, Manny and I will engage in trivia contests off-air to decide uh, who gets to pick. And Manny has been on a fucking massive win streak it's no secret. The man knows his movies as much as it pains me to say. Uh, I believe I was on six L's coming into uh, yeah. coming into this one. Six yeah. consecutive L's. Yeah, I felt pretty confident going into uh, into our trivia contest. Sammy had the pick of the uh, category, which was Lord of the Rings trivia, a category that neither of us really felt like we had the advantage in. I think. Yeah, totally true. Totally yeah. true. Um, and I took home the W. We got the win. Yeah. Squeaked so, it out. First and... time in months, in months, <laughs> I got to select the movie for the upcoming week. And by the way, we did this trivia contest a week before we've recorded this. We're recording this on December 6th, 2018. I think uh, it was probably uh, well, late November. Te- technically, we recorded this on December 5th. Yes, it's, excuse me. It's, we... it's after midnight in, uh, in both of our home provinces now. Um, but yeah, I, I've been itching to talk about what we're going to talk about next week. I can't believe I have to wait another week to talk about <laughs> the 2018 movie written and directed by Mr. Bo Burnham, and that is Eighth Grade. I am so excited to talk about this movie. I've referenced it on air a couple of times. Um, obviously, having the winless streak that I had had, I had a lot of movies bumping through my head as to what I could have recommended. 
but there's no movie that I want to talk about more and no movie that I want to make my co-host watch more than eighth grade. I am so excited. Um, I've been trying to look up uh, during the course of this episode any sort of hardware it's already been nominated for. Obviously, we are starting to get into uh, award season, but none of the big guys have really released their uh, nominees yet. But nonetheless, it took home uh, the best film at Detroit Film Critics Society. It made AFI's top 10 films of the year. Uh, recently at the Gotham Awards, uh, Bo Burnham and Elsie Fisher won Breakthrough Director and Breakthrough Actor, respectively. This movie just keeps on taking home the hardware. I would expect that continue to continue rather uh, through the award season, and I am so fucking excited to watch this movie <laughs> again. Yes, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very excited to watch this movie. Uh, despite my loss, which uh, I didn't take well. Um, <laughs> no, you did not. No, I, I certainly did not. Um, I, I would actually like an official recount. And um, denied. Yeah, god damn it. And but I'm super excited to watch this movie. Um, I've been uh, I've been hearing nothing but great things. Um, this has been on my radar for a while. Uh, I just haven't got around uh, to be able to watch it. So now uh, being able being forced to watch it for our show, uh, it's a win win for me. So yeah. I'm uh, I'm very excited to watch it and to discuss it next week. Yeah, I'll mention that I am simultaneously very excited and cripplingly nervous because I have hyped this movie up for you so much, <laughs> and there's no greater fear in me than the fact that you're just not going to like it, which I know is absurd because I know you and I know you taste in movies and I know you're going to like this, but I'm so scared that you're just going to be like, yeah, it's not nearly as good as you said it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am going to predict here on air, though, that uh, you are going to cry during this movie. There's no doubt. You are going to cry. For sure. I'm, I might cry. I teared up a little bit in theaters. Might cry again if I watch it. And you definitely are. Motherfucker. <laughs> All right. You can, you can tell us and our listeners next week if I'm right. All right. I, I, I don't doubt it. Um, <laughs> okay, so that's what's lined up for next week. Eighth grade. So for those of you uh, listening, make sure to uh, watch that movie before uh, listening to our episode. Um, as always... Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you could leave us a five-star rating or four-star rating. Oh, because it's, it's out of five stars. Oh, can, Ooh, you get half, right. can you get half stars? <laughs> Maybe. Fuck it. Stupid. I think they do. God damn it. Anyways, give us a five-star rating. Um, leave us a little review. It does help increase our profile so we can, uh, get, a, uh, we can get more listeners and we can crack uh, past this baker's dozen. Um, we are, you can contact us through our social media, which is Instagram and Twitter at Sam underscore Manny underscore movie. Um, please with, uh, with those, uh, shoot us some questions. Uh, we have our mailbag episode, uh, coming up, uh, next week. We're gonna be, we will be recording it next week. I don't think we'll be releasing it next week. Um, uh, probably going to release it, uh, over the holidays. Uh, so you guys don't have a big gap, uh, in between episodes, um, you know, Sam and I love this, but we do have families and Christmas coming. Um, so please, uh, we would love to hear from you. We would love to get some questions. Already got some questions, uh, through our brand new Instagram account. Uh, so that was exciting. Um, I'm excited to, uh, to talk about them and to talk about eighth grade next week. Uh, I think that's about it. Did I miss anything? I think you nailed it, sir. All right. So for the Samuel Emanuel Movie Podcast, I'm Manny Manuel.
I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot, and I'm Sam Reimer. <laughs> Adios.